foundation of this series. And this idea, this quote right here, it is pivotal in the life of David as he explains his love for the law of God. But I'll get to that here in a minute. Yes, I am Caleb Payne, back to my actual introduction. From the Inner City Mission, you guys have partnered with us for years, and we, we bring greetings and we thank you. We thank you for your partnership. We love being here with you this morning. Last time I was here, I actually got to uh, witness my little brother uh, preach his very first sermon, and it made all of us blush a couple times because he doesn't really have a filter. I have a bit more of a filter than my brother does, so if you remember his sermon, uh, anyways, he's a fun guy. He's a good guy. Uh, We appreciate uh, your partnership over the years at the Inner City Mission. I would ask, specifically right now, that if you would keep our residents in your prayers because we had a COVID outbreak this past week. It's our fourth one in the shelter over the past two years. And for whatever reason, there's a number of reasons why this is. Um, COVID hits especially hard on the homeless population. They have two to three times worse health outcomes, usually because they are bringing a whole lot of health, um, pre-existing health issues into this pandemic. And so if you would keep them in our prayers, keep them and our staff in our prayers, sometimes it gets hard to staff. Uh, This isn't just local to us, it's local to everyone during the pandemic, but when there's an outbreak, we're trying to keep everyone safe. That would be great. We have been going through Psalm 119 as a congregation. And I actually, when Warren asked me this, I was kind of excited to do this. I've never preached on Psalm 119, but I studied it recently. I'm getting a degree in our seminary at Lincoln Christian University, and the studies brought me to Psalm 119 about three or four months ago, specifically studying one passage, which we will go through uh, this morning, but as I was studying it, I came across this article. I can't remember. It, it was like either Christianity Today or Christian Post or Christian Standard, Christian something. One of those editorial um, publications that exist out there. They had they actually had a article on Psalm 119 right as I was going through it. So I read it, and it was interesting to me. The author he makes some very valid points. He just couldn't wrap his mind around how. The author of Psalm 119, which is most likely King David, he couldn't wrap his mind around how he had such a a loving infatuation with the law of God. And if you've read Psalm 119 beginning to end, it's like a love letter. Like, if I learn to love my spouse as much as David loves the law of God, our marriage is going to be fine. He, He goes above and beyond in his intimacy And that's what I wanted to explore today, because the point of the article was like, where does that come from? Have you ever like started a Bible reading plan, and Genesis is really easy, and Exodus is fun, and then you hit Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and maybe given up at one point? I have multiple times in my life just trying to slog through that part of the law that David is praising God for. And so that's kind of the question I want to look at today. We're going to be in a very specific passage of 119, and David's going to expound a little bit on where that love comes from. I didn't use proper English. Where that love comes from. He's going to expound on that. And what I love, we're going to be in specifically verses 89 through 96 this morning. And what I love is that there are portions within this passage that correspond 
to the good news we find in the New Testament. It corresponds to this notion and the steps of salvation that we see. So David, as he, as he I'm going to assume it's David from henceforth, because I think it was David who wrote this psalm, as do other people who tell me that. Um, as David writes 119 and specifically these verses, he's not exactly chronological, but he's making notes of the steps of his own journey with God. And we see those steps as being vital to our life today. And so this morning as I preach, I'm going to bring out some points of this is how it worked for David, and also this is the good news for us today. So I'm going to read it and then pray, and we'll get going. I have a short introduction this morning. If anyone has ever heard me preach before, I normally have like 30-minute long introductions, and then my body is like five minutes. Like I have a short introduction, so that means afterwards we have some ways to go, but... I've categorized it into four easy points. I normally just have one point to sermons. I, I like go, I, I'm going on a sidetrack. All right, Psalm 119, verse 89. I go down every rabbit hole. When I'm up here speaking, I get so excited. I see a rabbit hole and run down it. The word of the Lord is much more in depth than my rabbit holes. Here we go. Verse 89, it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. Verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Why don't we go ahead and pray? God, you are good, and I thank you for the Psalms. I thank you for these testimonies of people who went before us, who wrote these beautiful songs and Psalms, these poems of love in their heart towards you and towards your ways that we can look after, that we can mimic in our lives. God, I pray this morning as I speak, as we're here, as the body of Christ, that your spirit and your wisdom would be present beyond measure. Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. You don't need elegance, just the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, the first point I want to make, I'm going to dive right in to make sure that I get through the good points. Sometimes I get talking and I forget to actually make my points. The first point that I want to make today, and it comes straight from the Scripture, is that David's disobedience, the first part to answering this question of why does he love the law of God so much, there's three verses in Psalm 119 where we, we kind of see the beginnings of his story, where he goes back to the beginning and charts, this is what has happened to get me to this day. And this is the point. David's disobedience leads him to love the Word of God. And this correlates to our lives, as we'll see. I'm going to open up the book of Romans here in a minute, as we did in the Sunday school hour. It is very much the afflictions of our life that lead us to a point 
of metanoia, changing our mind, repentance. The afflictions of our life lead us to this. Now, here in the text, we see um, David do this three times. In verse 92, we read, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If you go earlier in the text, at verse 67 and 71, he explains this a little more. So verse 67, he says, Before I afflicted, we don't know exactly what he was afflicted with, but whatever it was in his particular life, it was coming from something and to something. It was coming from, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I had gone astray. There's a lot we don't know packed into that one little line. Before I was afflicted, I had gone astray, but now I keep your word. Then in verse 61, or 71, it says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. I have learned to kiss the wave that tosses me against the rock of ages. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Something in David's life, when he was disobedient, was coming against him. It was not working. His disobedience was leading to some sort of death in his life. And that was killing him to the point that he was fleeing it. And what he finds, and what we find him saying here, in the immediate verses following these three verses, he says it three times, I found death in my old ways, but the new ways brought me life. So if you go back to verse 92, the very next verse, 93, it says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And again, following his other statements, it Verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Whatever he's finding, it sounds an awful lot like what Jesus describes as the pearl of great wealth. You guys remember that parable. A man goes out and he finds this treasure of immeasurable value. So he completely changes his life over. He goes and sells everything he has in order that he might have his pearl. And David is connecting the afflictions, the junk of his life, before his turning point. He is connecting it to say, that has led me to an immense appreciation for the life that comes after, the pursuit of the law of God. In the book of Romans, this is the entire large structure of what Paul is talking about with his gospel. Because the large structure is this idea that God, because we have within us this desire, and we went through this deeply in Sunday school, we're just going to cover the basics at the moment, because we have um, this desire within us to use our freedom to disobey God, we have what is called the wrath of God coming against us. In verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans. And the wrath of God, the thing that I would just want to explain to everyone real quick is that there, we think of wrath as being like this uncontrollable anger, 
But the wrath of God here is actually explaining, in the Greek, there's two words for anger and this word wrath. It, it's actually, it's giving this idea, this connoting this idea of, I have this deep well of steadfast opposition. And so in Romans chapter 1, we see not a God who is out of control with his violent emotions, but a God who is steadfast in his opposition to us running after our own ways that kill us. Like a parent, not wanting their kid to do something that hurts them. And the kid, he responds with, but I really want to do it. I have a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a seven-year-old in my family, and I get a front-row seat to this all the time. My sons, <laughs> I don't know why they think this is effective, but when I tell them not to do something, they often reply to me, but I really want to do it. And they're, you know, if it's not going to hurt them, there might be some negotiation there that maybe, maybe that's bad parenting. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But when it comes to something that hurts them, it's like, no, you can't do that. You know, you can't shoot a bow and arrow straight into the air. That's very problematic to your future health. And I know you don't understand these things yet, but someday you'll learn about gravity. You know, it's that sort of idea. That this wrath of God is very much tied into this notion of the rock of ages. I'm being tossed against his unmovable standards. And it's for our sake. Out of love for us that the immaturity we have by nature to wanting to do all the things, even if God says we shouldn't, he's going to stand there as a solid rock and not move. I find actually a lot of comfort in that. I used to get upset quite a bit by this notion of a wrathful God, but the more I've studied it, the more I've understood what the gospel is, the more I understand it is very calculated for my good. And so this notion of repentance is what Paul gets into in Romans chapter 2. In the first four, six, eight verses of Romans chapter 2, he goes into this idea that the wrath of God is not just simply there to say you can't do nice things, can't do pleasurable things. It's not just there willy-nilly. It's there for a very specific reason. And it's this notion of repentance. Again, the changing of the mindset. And so what Paul says in Romans 2, verses 3 and 4, he's like, do you not realize that God is kind and he is patient amidst his wrath, amidst his steadfast opposition to the things that are contrary to him? He is kind and he's patient leading you through the broken things of this world to repentance. Ultimately, he is seeking a people who he can buy back through Jesus Christ. I have gone my way. This is what we see in Psalm 119. And David, who writes half the Psalms, it's a constant, constant theme of his. I am so broken over the times I've gone astray. And I love the Lord of God. I love the law of God because it shows me the way of life. We see this, if you want to put your finger in Psalm 119, we see this beautifully in Romans chapter 6, 
Paul, at this point, he's talking to believers. Don't worry, my first two points are long, and my last two points are like a minute each. So we'll get through this, the sermon, I promise. Um, in Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking to people who are believers. They've accepted Jesus, they have a new way of life, and he's reminding them of the old way. I caught it. Verse 20 of Romans chapter 6, it says, Remember, okay, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Interesting how he frames this type of freedom. You were free from righteousness. But, verse 21, but the fruit you were getting at that time, but what fruit were you getting at that time? from the things of which you are now ashamed, for the end of those things of death. The longer you live with this buffet of crap, again, pardon my language, I keep using that C-R-A-P word, which is not nice. The longer you live eating that, when you start to taste the good stuff of God, it's like, I don't want to go back. Verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you give leads to holiness, and the end of holiness is life everlasting. That's the sentiment we're hearing from David. David, all throughout Psalm 119, it's like, my old ways have taught me to repent, and now I hate... You could even say that he's somewhat uncharitable to his enemies. It's like, have you forgotten you were in your own boat? Because all throughout Psalm 119, he's like, dash these people who don't love, love your ways... It's like he forgot that I was in that boat and that's what led me to this point. But it's not enough. In Romans, Paul paints the picture of the necessity of this repentance and he does that before he gets to Jesus. And what, this is the second point of my sermon, what Jesus does is what we can't do ourselves. He actually sets us free. And he does so by not just, uh, Paul is going to, uh, all throughout Romans, Paul is going uh, to paint this picture that in repentance, we choose with our minds the ways of God, and it changes our life. But what Jesus does is he takes it out of the realm of the mind, and he actually changes our heart and our desires. And that's the second point that we make. For David, you guys have probably heard the famous line about David. He was a man after what? God's own heart. That's right. It wasn't just for David a fleeing after what was broken and dreadful, even though that's a very good motivator. I don't like to sit in the things that hurt me. That's a good motivation. But for him, it becomes deeper than that onto the actual intimacy of God. Now, David did not have Jesus like we do. He'd be so jealous of us. But he did have his Lord. It, what is interesting throughout the psalm is that psalms, there's multiple psalms where David actually has an encounter with Jesus on his throne. Well, I think most famously is Psalm 110. Jesus actually quotes this in the New Testament. And he refers to the relationship that he had with David. In Psalm 110, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. 
when David says, the Lord says to my Lord, how Jesus translates that is that David is seeing a vision of Jesus on the throne of God, and God speaks to Jesus and says, sit on my throne while I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. There is this cosmic divine relationship going on in the heavens that David is attuned to. And as he is experiencing these visions, he has this overwhelming heart and passion and desire to do what his Lord tells him to do. And so, uh, going back to Psalm 119, this is actually the, uh, the sermon uh, title this morning, verse 89. It says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. This passage is quoted once in the New Testament. We're going to get to that in a second. How they quote it in the New Testament and how the New Testament translates this notion of word of the Lord they translate it as the presence and reign of Jesus Christ. And so the New Testament authors, when they, they quote the Old Testament on every page of the New Testament, but they are quoting it and translating it through the reality of Christ. And namely, what people like Paul and the other authors of the New Testament are doing is that they're saying, I now see the history of what God is doing through Jesus Christ where he was hidden before now. And so we have the authority, sometimes we might think that they're taking the Old Testament out of context, but actually what they're doing is saying, I am seeing the risen Christ and how he has worked in the history of his people, how he, through him, created the entire world. God, through Jesus, creates the entire world. God, through Jesus, sets apart Abraham and his descendants from which we get the law, from which we get the entire people of Israel. This is all underneath the reign of Christ. And that's what the New Testament is trying to tell their fellow Jews constantly. There is a guy named Jesus whom we're all going to be accountable for someday because all of this is his. All of this life is His. And the good things, the Word of God that we have, it is His Word. And so you guys, you'll remember probably John 1.1, that famous phrase, in the beginning was the, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. Nothing was created without Him. And then you flip down, that's John 1, 1 through 2. When you flip down to verse 14, the Apostle John, he really fleshes it out even more. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In other words, God, Jesus, who is on the throne, He became a human like us and dwelt among us. And that brings us to the New Testament passage where Psalm 119.89 is quoted, and it's in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he's going he's to use this same theology that John has in John chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, he says in verse 20, 
He said, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you, through him, who are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's my fourth point in the sermon today, but we'll get back to that. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. In verse 25, he quotes Psalm 119, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. The Word of the Lord is a pillar. And specifically here, first, uh, what Peter is saying here is that the Word is Jesus Christ, who's become manifest, who now gets to live in us, who makes this thing not just a text. The living, manifested Jesus Christ, who lives in all of us through His Spirit, makes this a living document for our lives. It's a document of life that pours in us. So you learn in Sunday school growing up, the answer to everything is Jesus. And then the addendum to that answer is, and read your Bible. You know, there is power, as we sang this morning, there's power just in the name of Jesus. And that is what the philosophers call a metaphysical reality. It's not just a cognitive belief. It's not just something we believe in our minds, even though it can start as that. But the fullness of the gospel of God is that God himself is coming to dwell inside of us. I love what this verse 23 is. Verse 23 of 1 Peter 1, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the word of God, uh, Paul uses this um, analogy when he preaches the gospel to the Corinthians. He, he preaches the gospel, he explains it all in 11 chapters in Romans. In 1 Corinthians, he sums it up in one chapter in, in chapter 15. And what he says about us is that we, we were made of the dust of the ground and God breathed life into us. But Jesus is the eternal one who took on a perishable body in order that he might put it to death. It's, it, it, it's this beautiful Beautiful picture of helping us identify what is the point of Jesus? What is Jesus coming to do? He's becoming like us so that in his death, he actually puts to death the flesh and its desires and is raised imperishable so that the imperishable can make us imperishable. There's so much hope to that vision. I've seen our residents cry as I talk about the hope we have in Jesus Christ that one day, guess what? we will be given completely new bodies. And we will live in a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be no more tears. There will be no more gnashing of teeth, signifying angst and anger, despair. 
will be given new bodies in which our traumatized bodies, our history of trauma that lingers so heavily over us to this day, in Jesus Christ it is no more. And there's coming a day when we will be given new bodies with a new history. The things that have been done and were done by my residents, that is not the end of the story. In Jesus Christ, we are made brand new. So if we flip back to Psalm 119, we've got two more quick points. Those were the deep points this morning. I mean, it's just the gospel, you know. The gospel is explained on every page of the New Testament. It's pretty, pretty intense stuff, but it, at the core of it is this beautiful reality that, number one, our repentance is, is it's like this soil that has been prepared for the seed of Christ. And the seed of Christ is number two. And David is experiencing these things as he has this weird dancing relationship with the Spirit of God that he just wants more of. And the more he has it, the more he can't get enough. You, you might think, like, that sounds like an addiction. He is addicted to the Spirit of God. And it is filling him up. That's the essence of Psalm 119. All right, the, the last two points that I have are kind of results. What now? What is next? In, um, in verse 95 of Psalm 119, it says, The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. So in other words, he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, as he describes it in some other famous spot you might remember. And there's wickedness all around him. He's saying, but my eyes, my eyes are trained on the testimony and the experiences of God. And that relates perfectly to what we find in the famous passage, Romans chapter 8. Verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be? Yeah, who can be against us? This is how Paul is summing up his gospel, the effects of it. If God is for me, who can be against me? And this is what David is tasting all throughout his poems that he writes. I am protected by the Lord God Almighty. Verse 33 of Romans 8 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. The point he's making is, I'm more than a conqueror of these things. I'm an heir with Christ. He is living with me. I am a child of God. And that changes everything. As the gentleman was saying this morning, it's not that my troubles suddenly go away when I'm with Jesus, but my troubles are there, but I'm with Jesus. The more I'm with Jesus the more it's like the things of this world 
fade quickly away in the light of His glory and grace. Another hymn. I got hymns on the mind this morning. (laughs) There's something powerful to the old hymns. Sung throughout the ages by brethren of ours and other time. Empowering all sorts of power to these beautiful words. So yeah, uh, the intimacy with Christ lead, or uh, the intimacy with Christ leads to complete trust in Him. And then finally, intimacy with Christ leads to a life pursuing what this word is: precepts of God. Um, verse ninety four. We see the word precepts twice in our passage this morning. Verse um, verse ninety four. I'll focus on this one. It says, I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. Um, this, this word is important in Christianity. And in my, in my estimation of what the New Testament is, what the Gospel is, it's very important to Christ's message. This word precepts in the, in the Greek translation, it's literally like the governing principle from which laws are made. So it's not necessarily the law itself, but it's like the undergirding. What's the essence? What's behind the reason I'm told not to do this? David is like, I'm running after these underlying laws of God. And so we might think of a precept as, in America, a one might be, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. Like, that's not a specific law, but we have so many of our laws that are built around that principle in order to enact that principle. And so this is the essence of New Testament living. Is that we are building ourselves around the principle of the Word of Christ. And when we see over and over and over again in the New Testament, I don't have time to go through all the Scripture where we see this, but the authors of the New Testament keep pointing us back to one command of Christ. If you love me, keep my commands, as John says. And it's this command, this understanding, this notion of love, true love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. We see this when Jesus says what the greatest commandment is. Love the Lord your God, love others. Upon these things, upon all the law and the prophets, this is what exists. So in other words, love is the underlying precept of what we see as the, the law of God in the Old Testament. And David is tapping into this deeper reality of who God actually is. He's tapping into the heart of God. The one who loves mercy. The one who upholds justice. And those tie in at the same time. He's tapping into the actual love of God. So Paul in Romans chapter th- uh, 13, he actually makes this point as well. That love is the fulfillment of the law. It is this underlying precept. In Romans chapter 2, ultimately what Paul is going to say is that God, in Romans 2, he's saying that God is drawing a line in the sand. And that line is not between religious people and not religious people. That's what's so offensive about Paul and Jesus' message in his day. The line that he draws is between repentant and not repentant. And he's saying the sign of repentant persons are those who run after the precepts of the law and obey them. (laughs) 
That was a lot. That was a lot, <laughs> a lot of Scripture. Pretty intense talk this morning. Um, I, I appreciate you guys tracking with me this morning. I'm going to actually close it with one last Scripture, which I think really sums up the heart that David has towards the law of God. And we see it in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 12. It's this famous Scripture that we understand it's, it's more than what it just means on, on face value. It says, For the Word of God... For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of our soul and our spirit, of our joints and our marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The truth and the reality of Jesus Christ working through this book cuts us to the deepest depths of who we are, laying out our heart in honesty before God, who in kindness becomes us, Emmanuel. He becomes us so that our hearts might actually have new intentions. So Christianity is not just a thing that I'm running after with my mind, but I'm running after a person who changes my heart. Let me pray. God, your love is good. You are good. Your love endures forever. I thank You for who You are. I thank You for being just an overwhelmingly good God. I thank You for this time that we've had this morning to be together and for this congregation. Thank You for Berlin Christian Church and all that You are doing here and through them. How You're affecting lives on the other side of the world through them. You're affecting lives next door through them. I pray for your spirit and your power to be in this place in abundance and in all of us as we leave this place. Till we meet again next time, in Jesus' name, amen.